Lord, your word tells us that there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And so, Lord, it's through the nature and the essence of who you are that God caused you to come and to rescue us. And so, Father, because you have, we worship you in this place tonight. We gather together, Lord, to hear from your word one more time. And we just pray that you would bless us as we do. And so, Father, we just give you all of the glory, just thanking you, God, for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Neighbors. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles. We are now taking upon this last endeavor to teach through not the last book of the Bible, but the last book of the Bible that we will have studied. And so when we finish Second Chronicles, as I pointed out many times, then we will have gone through the whole Bible and then we will start all over again moving forward. There are other books of the Bible that we have taught a couple of times, but nonetheless, the Bible tells us that we are to teach it and we are to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so I think going through the whole Bible every 20 years should pretty much cover the whole counsel of God. Um, But uh, it's not something, now there's nothing wrong with going through the Bible rapidly without a doubt. I'm just kind of a verse-by-verse guy. Although in First and Second Chronicles, we are pretty much doing a survey. A lot of the material we covered in First and Second Kings. And so we are doing a survey of them. For instance, tonight we'll be looking at the first five chapters of Second Chronicles. But nonetheless, we see the rich things that God has for us. And so previously in 1 Chronicles, we were introduced to David's son, Solomon. Solomon is one of those people, well, I say one of those people, he's a man just like we are. You could look at Solomon's life and you could probably build a pretty good case of why this man is not saved, why he is not right with God. Other areas you could look at his life and say, well, of course he is. And it's the thing, when you examine somebody's life under the microscope, the only thing that you should truly see is God's grace. And so we saw the last couple of weeks, the last couple of Sundays, that David's son Solomon has been coronated king of all of Israel. The leadership has gotten together and they have come together in agreement. And so Solomon is about to start a reign that is going to be a reign of peace. And we're going to see him do some great things. We're also going to see some failures in his life. And so... For Solomon, it's one of those hard things. I would imagine he's been told he's going to be king. There had to be an excitement, but there had to be excitement with an undercurrent of fear as well. Well, now as we come to Second Chronicles, the first chapter, King David's dead. And now the responsibility, it all lays upon Solomon's lap. It's all set upon him, and that has to be a fearful thing. It's easy to give our opinion when somebody else is in charge. It's easy to be a critic when it's somebody else's responsibility. But when it becomes our responsibility, then it's, and we truly realize what a responsibility is and the great weight that a responsibility is. And so Solomon, he must take to heart the charge that his father had given him and prove himself a man prove himself a man of God. And how is he to do that? Well, David's first encouragement to him was, seek the Lord. 
Because a man who is truly a man and is a leader of God's people is going to first and foremost seek after God to understand the will of God so that he's able to convey that will to his people. A leader in God's sight is one who has a passion for the Lord and seeks to fulfill the role that God has given him, whether it be king or any other means by which God has called us to serve him. But the task that was laid before Solomon, now he understands the magnitude because the charge was first given to his father. And it was obvious that God was with his father, and this was a work that God had done through his father to establish the kingdom of Israel, all of these 12 tribes as one. For his son, it's going to be necessary for him to maintain God's kingdom. That's a work within itself. It's one thing to assemble a kingdom. It's quite another to keep it maintained. To minister to God's people. God uses the king in order to enact his law for the purpose of blessing his people. And so David's going to have to maintain the kingdom, but also minister to the people. But even now, we also see that he's the one who's been called to make God's temple, to make that dwelling place of the Lord, but also this meeting place of the people as well. This place when people are called to come up on the appointed time, that when they come, they understand we're going up to Jerusalem. We're going to the temple, we're going to the place where we're going to meet the Lord. Because of sin and all of sin and falling short of the glory of God, we're going to the place to make the sacrifice so that sins are covered. And right now, even though David has unified the nation, the worship of the Lord is still fragmented, as we're going to see in in just a little bit. And so as we enter into 2 Chronicles, we now look at the life and ministry of Solomon. And the first thing that we see in chapter 1, starting at verse 1, the first six verses, is Solomon's heart to worship the Lord. It says, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. And Solomon spoke to all of Israel, to the captains of thousands and hundreds, to the judges and to every leader, and all of Israel, the heads of the father's houses. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness." But David had brought up the ark of God from kirjath Harim to the place of da- to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Bessiel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord Solomon, and the assembly sought him there. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. And so it's because that Solomon had a heart to worship God that God had a heart to visit and to bless Solomon. Solomon was a man after God's own heart, just as truly as his father was. And God sees in that, somebody who has a passion for the Lord, he sees in that an avenue to work through an avenue to work through, to again, whatever it is you've been called to do and gifted, God will work through that. But again, it's not just the ability that you have, it's the heart that you have for God. And well, at the beginning here, and again, his dad wasn't perfect, so he's not going to be perfect. His sons will not be perfect. No man has ever been perfect, but nonetheless, he still see that he did have a heart for God. We must understand that Solomon 
is not worshiping God according to his own righteousness, nor is God going to bless him because Solomon is righteous, because it's at this time that Solomon, we're told in 1 Kings, has already married one of Pharaoh's daughters. Now, the reason that a man, a king at that point, would marry another king's daughter is because of alliances. It would be to seal a treaty between the two. And so Solomon, although he did trust on the God, you see that his trust isn't perfect. He had no right making treaties with foreign nations, let alone marrying the daughter of a foreign king, of a heathen king. All of God's interaction with mankind is based upon grace, God's interaction with Solomon that we're going to see here even in a little bit and how he blessed him is based upon grace as well. One of the verses that I used this morning is Titus chapter 3 verse 5. It says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now I said a little bit ago that the tabernacle and man's means of worshiping God is, is fragmented at this time. If we look back at verse 3, it says, Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. Now, mankind was not to minister, not to worship God at the high place. The high places were the world's means of worshiping God. We're not going to go to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 of Genesis, but we see it started there, and the idea is paganism. Now, at this point, there was no established place. At least, God had not called man to Jerusalem. That's actually in the process. And so what we have here is we've got the tabernacle, three items. The tabernacle, we have the bronze altar, and we have the ark of the Lord. The ark of the Lord to the Jewish mind was the throne of God. This is the place where God sat and governed the authorities of his people. That was the mindset of the Jew. Now that has been removed from the tabernacle that Moses constructed in the wilderness. If you recall, when we were in First Chronicles, what did David do? David brought that tabernacle into Jerusalem. And so the idea, David's excited, he's dancing before this procession, it's coming into their mindset, God is now dwelling in the midst of our capital. David, he had constructed a tent for the ark to be brought into, and that's where it is at this point. So the ark of the covenant is in a tent, a tent, tabernacle, same thing, it's not the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, but a tent, and that's in Jerusalem. But the place of sacrifice, the original tent, the original tabernacle, and the bronze altar, that's at Gibeon. That, that's not there. And so that's why Solomon needed to go over there in order to offer his sacrifices upon that bronze altar. This was the bronze altar that as the Jews were wandering through the wilderness that they made their sacrifices, and it's the same altar that they're making sacrifices during that day. And so Solomon is going to construct the temple and all of these things are going to be consolidated. We don't know what happened to that original tent, that original tabernacle. I'm sure it deteriorated over time and at some point was disposed of. We don't even know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant today, nor the bronze altar. Time has taken care of them. I think a big reason a lot of these things aren't around, number one, the fulfillment of them was Jesus Christ, and we no longer need them. But what would happen if I could produce the Ark of the Covenant here, or the bronze altar, or the tent? Number one, don't believe me, because that it's not going to happen. But if I could, what would happen? People would start bowing down, 
and worshiping them. And that's not what we are to do. What if I could produce the cross that Jesus Christ was crucified upon? People would come and start bowing down and, and, and they'll end up worshiping that. And that's not what it is. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? That true worship is to worship in spirit and in truth. We've got something better. We're possessed by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit. Now, in that particular context, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's your spirit. That's God having communion with the person who you are. The truth, Jesus is truth. The Word of God is truth. And the Spirit is truth. And when these things come together, we have true worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Solomon was doing what he needed to do, and there's nothing wrong with what he's doing at this point. Until the temple is to be constructed, then there's going to be this fragmented worship and um, knowledge of where God is and where God dwells. It's, it's just going to be spread out for this period of time. Second thing that Solomon, we had a heart for worship, Secondly, he does is right off, he asks for wisdom. Because again, this work, well, I would imagine he'd be thinking, my dad, my dad was a great man. My dad had great faith in God. My dad, during those times when he wandered through the wilderness and he was hiding from Saul, and he had his down times as well, but nonetheless, he continued to have his eyes upon the Lord. Solomon would have the writings of his father as well and see the intimacy between David and God. And so, verse 7, it says, On that night, on the night that Solomon worshipped the Lord through those many sacrifices, on that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? Isn't that kind of an amazing thing? Think about that. What if you went to bed tonight and God woke you up and says, Hey, ask, what do you want? Now, just think of the one, number one, who, who is asking. He, he, he's asking you what I want. And God's able to provide whatever it is that you would want. Now, obviously, if he'd asked something sinful, God wasn't going to do that, anything improper. But the Lord looks at the heart. He understands the heart of Solomon. And so that night, God appeared to Solomon and asked him, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. I see the work that you've done through my father, and and now I'm king. Verse 9, Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and the multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? See, notice his perspective. He didn't say these great people that you have given me, these great amount of people that are mine. He's understanding these are God's people, and Lord, you have placed me in this place of oversight of of something that is very precious in your sight. That's something that no leader within the body of Christ can ever forget. They're not my people, they're God's people, and he has given you the privilege of oversight. Again, verse 11, then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for riches or wealth or honor for life or for your enemies or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but you have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. 
and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. So after going in a bad direction before heading off to another, God meets Solomon and gives him the most valuable resource that any leader of God's people could ever possess, wisdom. Again, this is obviously not just human wisdom, but this is the wisdom that comes from God. Solomon was the wisest man who has ever existed. We're told in Proverbs, writing of Solomon, chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, asking God for wisdom is when we studied the book of James in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And so in our Christian lives, we are to seek the word for knowledge. We are to ask for wisdom in prayer and believe in sincere faith understanding that the result is going to be maturity for the work of ministry that God has set before us. And the work of ministry, the target of ministry, is always God's people. And so as God gives his people in the work of ministry, husband, a wife, children, here at church, wherever it might be, it's in these areas that we must ask God, Give me wisdom that I not lead your people in the flesh, but I would have the wisdom from above for the purpose of leading in the Spirit. And it's as we lead in the Spirit, according to the Spirit, that we see God's will come to pass. This man, though, who was given such great wisdom at times, acted so foolishly. We know that he would increase his wives to 700 he would have 300 concubines. These women were told in 1 Kings chapter 11 would eventually steal his heart away from the Lord. Now it's believed that Ecclesiastes is written at the end of Solomon's life and it seems that he did come back to a right relationship with the Lord understanding that all of these things that he sought after were simply vanity. And what we're going to see in verses 13 through 17 is that as Solomon was building such vain things, useless things, if you will, in his life. Verses 13 through 17. So Solomon came to Jerusalem. So now he's back to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon from before the tabernacle of meeting and reigned over Israel. And Solomon, so this is kind of a synopsis of this area of his life. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kaveh. The king's merchants brought them in Kaveh in the current, at the current price. They also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot of 600 shekels of silver and a horse of 150 thus through their agents. They exported them all to the kings of the Hittites and the king of Syria. And so... In verse 12, we were told what God said he was going to give Solomon. He was going to give Solomon riches. But also, what you need to notice here in verses 13 through 17 are the verbs. 
the verbs of what Solomon did in, in verse 14. Solomon gathered. In verse 15, the king made. In verse 16, he imported. In verse 17, he acquired. It's good that God gives, but what happens when man is not content and goes above and beyond what God has given and stepped in and done what, well, done what he desired? And so in verses 14 through 25, we see the accumulation of all of these things. And the problem is, what we'll see in a little bit, the accumulation of a lot of these things, of just about all of these things, are contrary to the Word of God. Uh, we'll visit it in just a little bit. We've been there before. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God knew that Israel was going to appoint a king. Now, originally, it was God's desire that he would be a king and there would be judges. The judges would seek after the word of God when there was a decision to be made, and God would make the decision through the word to the judge and to the people. But what has happened, Israel wants a king like everybody else. Obviously, God knew that was going to happen. That was going to be the desire of their heart. And so one of the things God's told them in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when you appoint a king, he's to write out the law. He's to write out the law so that he would know, number one, when he's breaking it, number two, that he would know that he is to lead the people according to it. And so Solomon... He knows better than some of the things that he's done. And just bear with me here for a little bit on this, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And so Solomon, he's acquired these riches, and he's acquired these riches, unfortunately, for himself. And, and so we've got to be careful about that, because God's people, they've been commanded to give. When God's people have been commanded to give, the one who is used by the Lord to receive those finances and distribute those finances, he's got a strong responsibility we're told in the scripture that a pastor is worthy of double honor, but it does not say he's deserving of double honor. If a minister lives beyond the means of his congregation, then he's living outside of the will of God. And Solomon is living as the richest man, probably those who determine such things, the richest man who has ever existed. His yearly intake, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, it says the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Now this is just the gold. Now 666 talents of gold would be equal today to about a billion dollars. Now, if I gave you a billion dollars, first thing asked, Pastor Mike, where'd you get a billion dollars from? But if I gave you a billion dollars and you spent a thousand dollars a day for a year, it would take you 3,000 years to, to spend it all. And so just to kind of get an idea on the amount of that money. And so what would God have him do with it all? Well, what God gives, God desires to be used for the work of ministry. And we see that <clears throat> in the economy that God has fostered. Outreach, it costs money, but that's okay because God provides with what we need. And God brings in, and as God brings in, it's to be processed through to the, reach, the reaching out to the unbeliever so that the gospel would go out, putting it in our terms. And it should have been this, used the same way, rather than glorify a man, to be used to glorify God. And so... To glorify God, well, we see so many people, you see it on TV, that so many people have used it to glorify themselves. Solomon seemed to have fallen into that trap. Another area of pride we see here is he also multiplied not just the funds, but he also multiplied horses. 
horses and chariots. Well, the money and then the horses and chariots would speak of riches and power. A horse and a chariot back then would be like a tank today. And so what he was doing, he's building up his riches, he's storing up his power, but unfortunately he's doing it apart from God. And so it's God's desire that Israel, it's God's desire for us, that as far as financially and as far as protection and power, we would be dependent upon the Lord. Because if Solomon is dependent upon the Lord, then he seeks God out in every instance. But once he becomes dependent upon the finances that he's been able to accumulate and the chariots or the power that he's been able to accumulate, then he starts depending upon that rather than God. Pride and strength will always cause separation between man and God. Now, it's good to have the things that money can buy, provided you don't lose the things that money can't buy. And money cannot buy a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we've got to make the things of the Lord the priority rather than the things of the world. And it's a delicate balance. There's, we work 40 hours a week, 40 plus hours a week some, and we're trying to make a living, trying to pay our bills and do those things, and that's an honorable thing to do. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And so as that is a reality within our Christian lives, we've got to keep the proper balance that we don't lose perspective. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, and again, Solomon more than likely is the author of this, and we believe that he has written it towards the end of his life. As he looked back, he came to realization, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity or a vapor. There's no substance to it. And I think he could write that because at some point he loves silver, but then he realized the emptiness of it all. Loved abundance, whatever it is, to have more and greater amounts. And he realized it did absolutely nothing for his soul. And what was I taught as a young man growing up? To get a good job, to make a lot of money, to get that big house and the new car and those things that the world would just fill our hearts with. And in the end, what is it going to do? It's all going to burn. And matter of fact, a lot of the stuff that we accumulate doesn't even make it to the end. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, for what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world? If you're able to gain everything that the world has, but you forfeit your soul, you you lose your soul, what will you give in exchange for your soul? And so it's that that we have to realize the priorities. And so even the wisest man who ever existed could not handle riches and power. Because what we're told in Deuteronomy, and these would have been words that Solomon as king would have had to written himself. He would have had to write these things himself. Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17. God speaking in Deuteronomy to the king that would be appointed, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Well, it just said, in the verses that I read, 13 through to the end of the chapter, that that's what Solomon did. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Well, again, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What was the problem with that? It says, least his heart turn away. Again, in in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, 
we see these numbers, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. And at the end it says, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. What should Solomon have done? He should have been content with what God had given him. But instead, he multiplied these things, and he multiplied these things to his detriment. Fourthly, we see the preparation for construction, because again, this is all about God's grace, not the perfection of Solomon. And so he continued to press on, and God still used him. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. And so he understood the commission that was given to him from his father, that part of the purpose for him to, as king was to build this temple. It's interesting that he also put this house, this this palace of his own, this house of his own, in with that commission. Um, I believe it was seven years that it took building the temple, and it was 13 years that he took building his own house. But nonetheless, what we see here in chapter 2 is him getting things ready, he's preparing. When I was involved in construction, there were three key elements to every project. Three key elements that had to be considered when putting together a bid. They were money, men, and material. If you're short on any one of those things, then the project's not going to come about. If you make a mistake on your takeoffs from the plan and you don't figure enough material, then that's coming out of your pocket. If you don't have enough men, then that's extra labor costs. If you don't have the money to put up in order to see the project done, Well, how many projects have you seen as you're driving down a road somewhere in the city or whatever, and you see something that got started building, and then all of a sudden it's stalled, and months go by and nothing happens? 99% of the time, somebody messed up on the money part of it. Somebody didn't wait till they got the loan or whatever it might be, but in that, it always reeks of them running out of money. If you're not prepared to build, then you are prepared to fail. And so, in verse 3, we see Solomon sent to Haram, king of Tyre, saying, well, he's speaking of this relationship that this man had with his father. And this land of Tyre, it was a seaport, and they were traders. They were well-versed in shipping. That's what they were known for. And because of that, they became very rich and very well-to-do. A lot of materials would be moved. And so they would be able to provide a lot of these things for the purpose of the construction of the temple, things that were not indigenous to the area of Israel, but that were necessary for the building project. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. He had always loved David. And this was a nation that at this point that wanted to bless Israel. And what happened? We see in... Uh, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 12, if those who, you, those who bless you will be blessed, those who cursed you will be cursed. Well, at this point, Tyre is a blessing to Israel. Later on, they're going to be a cursing. We're told that they committed fornication with the nations of that area, and their heart was turned against Israel. That's why they do not exist today. But what we see here is the relationships that we build today, how they go a long way for the future. Because David developed this good relationship with Hiram, his son Solomon is going to be, and the people are going to be beneficiaries of that. 
David's gone, but love will always linger. In verses three and I'm sorry, in chapters three and four, we see the actual building of the temple in chapter three, verses one and two. Now Solomon, so chapter two is about accumulating the materials. Chapter three, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Now when it says that, I don't think that Solomon swung a hammer or hit a chisel. He's causing these things in obedience to God. He's causing these things to happen. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. So specific dates. And I love it when the Bible puts specific dates and it's just making the point of this is actually what happened at that time. Now this temple, there's three ways, actually four ways that a temple is mentioned in the scriptures. Three ways that it's mentioned in the scriptures actually. First is this structure that Solomon is now building. That which the Jew considers to be, again, the dwelling place of God. And it was the place that they went to make sacrifices. There was to be four temples. Now, there are three ways that a temple is mentioned. But as far as the temple that was built in that location, there was going to be, well, there's still going to be one. There were three others, four total. There was the one that Solomon built, the one we're looking at now. Babylon is going to come in and destroy that one. Ezra is going to be released back to Jerusalem and they're going to construct another one that was paled in comparison to the grandeur of Solomon's. Later on, Herod is going to have a grand remodel and that's going to be the temple that the Lord Jesus Christ enters into. And then there's going to be one that is going to be in existence in the future during the time of tribulation. Now, the second way that a temple is mentioned, the first way is, is the temple that was on the temple mount there. The second way the temple is mentioned in the scriptures is the Lord Jesus Christ and his physical body. And he alluded to that in John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. It says, so the Jews answered and said to him, said to Jesus, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. Think of the richness of that comparison. Jesus is in essence saying, this is the temple because this is the place where the sacrifice is truly offered. This is going to be the sacrifice that washes away the sins of the world. This is the dwelling place of God as no other temple has been the dwelling place of God. And in so many areas, Jesus set the example for us because the third way that the temple is mentioned in the scriptures are our physical bodies. I pointed it out. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, that upon salvation, the Holy Spirit came to dwell inside of us. I pointed it out this morning. We're told specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells inside of you? And so just as Christ made that point, so we would see in him, he has also made us temples of the Holy Spirit. And so what Solomon has started, as I said before, is a seven-year building period. Now, 
What we must consider is, and we can be a people who are so impatient. Seven years. He had to know that it was going to take quite a while. But you know what he did on the first day? He started. And you know what he did on the second day? He continued to build. You know what he did a year later? Two, three, four, five, six. He continued on in the great work that God had called him to. He didn't stop. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. It had to be discouraging at times, had to be hard, had to be difficult at times, but he kept going. Let me ask you, what's going to happen in the Lord in your life seven years from now? Nothing unless you start the construction of a Christian today, that you're prepared for what God has for you. What if I told you that if you pray today, and you pray for seven years for the person in your life that you most desire to see saved, that that person would be saved, but you have to start praying now, and you have to pray every day for seven years. Would you be diligent in doing that? Because Solomon was diligent in doing what God had called him to do. Here's a place that people are able to come and to worship. So the fact of the matter is that I've pointed out before, Seven years from today, you know what's going to happen? No matter what, if you're still alive, if you're still around, you know what's going to happen? Seven years are going to come to pass. Are you going to be in the Lord's will and what he has spoken to you today so that in seven years from now, you would be able to enjoy what he has called you to do, what he wants to do, just to use this number of seven. But the idea here is, is to remain faithful and what God has called us to do. The best time, this isn't a biblical proverb, but it's been said, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. And so, yeah, Lord, I I, I wish I got saved earlier. I wish I was obedient to your call so much earlier because I would be seeing so much more fruit today. But God, in all of my disobedience, may I put it behind me and may I start afresh and anew today to dedicate myself, my actions, my obedience to you, Lord, and all that you desire. And then entering into chapter 5, after all the details of the building that we have in chapters 3 and 4, I'm going to read through chapter 5 because now we have the finished product. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers and the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is in Zion. Now the city of David, you have the temple mound up here, and the city of David is described here, because Bethlehem can be called the city of David as well, but Zion and Jerusalem is the city of David as well, and it's just down below. And so David had that tent near the area of his dwelling place where the ark was. So the ark is being brought up to the top of the hill to the tabernacle. And the idea is, again, the presence of God is entering in to this uh, temple that we have constructed. Verse 3. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings which were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. 
Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with them before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. So what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord and they're covering sin because this is a time of absolute purity and rejoicing in the Lord. Verse 7, Then the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. So the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the, <coughs> excuse me, from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are there to this day. When he says to this day of the day of the writing of what we're reading here in Chronicles. Verse 10, nothing was in the arks except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping of their divisions. And the Levites who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Himan and Jeduthian and the sons of their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar clothed in white linen, having cymbals and stringed instruments and harps with them, 120 priests surrounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard and praising and thanking the Lord and they lifted up their voice with trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying for he is good for his mercy endures forever so can you imagine this huge choir of praise you have these sacrifices that are going on the knowledge of holiness and the purity of the priests and the linen the people who are there it says that the house the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The idea here is after they offered all of these things to the Lord, the Lord entered in and the Lord dwelt there. And the idea here is, is that this was acceptable to God. When you do things God's way, his glory will inhabit your efforts. And I would imagine Solomon Solomon, and, and the people, they just had to be overwhelmed that what we have done is acceptable to God. And if you understand nothing else tonight, understand this. If you want to see the glory of God, you've got to bring the ark into the temple. And what I mean by that, the presence of God. You have to bring the presence of God. And the only way that we can bring the presence of God today into the temple that we are is, is through simple belief. It's just simple through belief. Belief in the Word of God, belief in the way of God. And so we see that what he has done, what he has done is an imperfect person has been used for the glory of God. And so what we must consider, as everybody here, even if there's an unbeliever here, we're all temples. And the idea is, which temple are you? If you're a temple of Molech, you'll bring in pride. Your pride will be wealth and the ways of the world. The worship of Moloch involved the sacrifice of children. If you're the temple of Asherah, you'll bring in porn, passions, and fleshly aspirations. And we see how porn has taken over our society today. If you are a temple just of yourself, something dedicated to yourself, you'll bring in pride again, self-exaltation, and humanistic thought. There's no atheist. Any atheist is really a God within himself. 
But if you're a born-again believer, you'll bring in the glory of God into your life, and in turn, it will spread to the lives of others. Others will be able to come to that place of worship, the, the, the temple that we are of the Holy Spirit, and experience the existence of God as well. It's the idea behind the fruit of the Spirit. Others are able to partake of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. God will not dwell there. For the temple of God is holy. And then Paul asks this question, and I'll leave you with this question. What temple are you? As we look at the priorities of our lives, what temple are we? Solomon One thing that he did do well here is he followed the instructions of his God and he continued to do it to such a degree that this is truly the temple of God because the glory of God has filled that temple. Father, I pray that your glory would fill our lives, but I pray, Lord, that we would present a temple to you that is honorable in your sight. And so, Father, I I just pray, Lord, that you would truly inhabit our lives and that others would be able to come and partake of your glory as well. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would enable us in all that you have called us, that, Father, you would strengthen us, especially during these dark days, and, Lord, your glory would be reflected to this world. Father, I lift up those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would bless them. Pray that you would go before them this coming week. And God, may we just simply glorify you through all that we do. I pray for our time with friends and family on Thursday, on Thanksgiving Day, Lord. I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding, ministering to those, Lord, who may be lost and encouraging those who are born again. And so, Father, we just thank you for this day of worship. We just pray, Lord, that you were honored, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Again, if you know anybody who wants a Thanksgiving meal, and again, we've got plenty. If uh, you know somebody that maybe they can't receive it for Thanksgiving, but later on, Again, we're still taking sign-ups for that. Keep Operation Christmas Child up in prayer. We've had a, a lot fewer, not our church, our church did pretty good, but we're a collection point to other churches, and we just had a lot fewer boxes than we usually have. But just lift that up in prayer, that God's will will be accomplished and um, that he would use the ones for his glory that have come in. Um, other than that, guys, have a great week. God bless you guys. Thank you.
Father God, we just ask right now that the words that we heard from your book, Lord, that we would have our vision be what your vision is in our life, Father. We would not make idols and we would walk according to what you have. So we give you all praise and glory tonight. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.